Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of the New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club show. My guest today is Jamie Wheel. And if you want an opinion about psychedelics coming to the World Economic Forum in Davos, like they did in May, keep listening. Jamie has interesting thoughts. Jamie Wheel is the author of Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. He's also the author of the Pulitzer-nominated global bestseller Stealing Fire. How Silicon Valley, Navy SEALs and Maverick scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work. He's the founder of the Flow Genome Project, an international organization dedicated to the research and training of human performance. His work and ideas have been covered in the New York Times, Financial Times, Wired, Entrepreneur, Harvard Business Review, Forbes and so on. He has spoken at the Stanford University MIT, the Harvard Club, Imperial College, Singularity University, the U.S. Naval War College and Special Operations Command, Sandhurst Royal Military Academy, the Bohemian Club and the United Nations. Jamie and I talk about the collapse of meaning in the last decades and how meaning 3.0 could actually look like. We talk about what a modern alchemist cookbook is and why ethical cult building could be very interesting. Plus, Jamie explains how flow looks like and what it has to do with the six neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, oxycontin, and a couple of more. And of course, we talk about the current state of psychedelics and how to avoid bliss junkies and epiphany whores, as he says. But still, will the future be your and my brain on psychedelics? This is the thing I'm talking to and about with Jamie Wheel. Please enjoy the show. Today on the show is Jamie Wheel, and I'm very excited because the first book I read about psychedelics was actually Stealing Fire, and for me it was a very important entry into the whole topic, and because it didn't only show like substances or talk about substances, but also how it is connected to bigger changes in society that were starting to happen at that point. But my first question to you would be, We just had last week um, a couple of panels at Davos at the World Economic Forum, and there was a medical psychedelic house in Davos with some of your friends, like Ronan Levy and um, was there on my panel, and Keith Ferrasi, who you also know. So if you hear this, that psychedelics are coming to Davos or have been in Davos last week as a topic, what is your instant reaction to this? The ultimate shock jump of late-stage capitalism that is far too little too late is equally hyped to crypto and will, will be a long way from saving us from any of the real challenges that we face. Okay. And the wrong people showing up. So it was wildly misrepresented by a bunch of Johnny-come-latelys who have grabbed the mic, who haven't been part of the movement for 30, 40, 50 years, who, have, who are fundamentally psychedelic novices, 
and are shouting from the rooftops about the latest and greatest hype cycle with very little wisdom uh, to back up the enthusiasm. That's my unfiltered take. I ask you. <laughs> but, we, but we can unpack it. I mean, no. you know, there's nothing like Germans for being direct. So, so I figure like, we'll, we'll have to honor it. <laughs> I thought you like it if you have a question like that and don't have to work around for hours until we get to this point. Um, so, but uh, you are one of the people who are interested in this topic already for a long time. And now, as you say, it's coming forward and it's in every second week, there's something in the New York Times about ketamine and how psilocybin will actually cure depression, possibly. So when you say what you just said, that a lot of people are, let's say, missing in the bigger picture or in the, yeah, well, let's say in the public eye, who would be the people who you would like to see more often and more presented in a mainstream? Well, I mean, you know, folks like Bob Jesse, you know, someone who has been yeah. rootedly part of the psychedelic community and holding a, you know, an actually psychedelically informed perspective, not just psychedelic boosterism, but someone who is attempting to represent the dignity, the integrity, and the wisdom that those experiences may, may confer over time. Um, Anne Shulgin would be an example. Mm -hmm. Any of the carrying on of feminine wisdom um, from the original movements and just some perspective beyond this hyper-masculine market scale, evidence, data, disembodied, reductionist, materialist, capitalist, you know, expressions of this thing. So any indigenous wisdom keepers, um, especially of just what does this mean to be in relationship to not just the substances, but the experiences that the substances engender and the communities of practice that have emerged over, you know, centuries and millennia around them. And, and then ultimately um, a piece that just to me just seems to be howlingly absent is what are we to make of the inevitability of these experiences themselves? I mean, 90% plus of the conversations have just been crammed into the medicalization sausage grinder at this point and get spat out as serotonergic, you know, re reuptake inhibitors, 5-HT2A receptor sites, you know, glutamate excitatory, you know, antidepressant thing for ketamine results. You're like, but what about the interiority of these experiences. And you know, you can nod to the sacred or the or the sanctified if that's part of your experience or tradition. You can also just sure as hell just point to the profoundly non-ordinary nature of these states and experiences. And then, you know, perhaps we could even begin to map these states and have something resembling a coherent model of information theory as to where are we going when we are in these states? Is it the same place? Is it radically different places? Is, does it, you know, not just set and setting, but self? Does it depend who's going where? Do different molecules, are they, are they like tuning crystals on an old radio dial? Like, mm -hmm. do, do they help us? There's, there's a broad spectrum of information to tune into and different compounds, different setting and self tune us more or less into different channels or stations. Is there a singular place we get to, but it's all overlaid, you know, with the different sort of chemical and conscious filters that we bring to the mix. Is this information constantly, is it benevolent? Is it omniscient? Is it tricksy? 
you know, is it trustworthy? Is it a direct linkage to the world and our challenges and our problems and our issues of this human condition? Is it orthogonal? You know, is it always kind of like, like, like it's never one-to-one, the information we gain from these spaces and what actually shows up in 3D? Do we have any ontological working models as to what on earth we're actually doing? Because right now, an overwhelming chunk of the conversation is individuals bungee jumping into the back of beyond, coming back, hair on fire, lit up, and typically very self-reflexive. I healed my trauma. I saw my grandfather. I saw insights into my self or being, you know, the kind of therapeutic model. I got to learn more about me. Or typically, you just get a wheels off break into unstructured, undisciplined, magical thinking. Oh, I was with Mother Ayahuasca, or I was riding an anaconda, or I contacted my guardian angels, or I realized I'm actually from the Pleiades, or whatever the fuck. And then people's, you know, pattern recognition or unpacking of those experiences is just, you know, it's adolescent. It wouldn't survive, you know, a rigorous high school or entry-level university philosophy class. You know, you'd be ripped to shreds if you brought that shit to an informed professor. And yet on Instagram, you know, and at many psychedelic conferences, people are trading that stuff back and forth like it's gold. Yeah, that's true, actually. So do you still think a lot about your first psychedelic experience you ever had? Hmm. I mean, I can look back on it fondly. It, it was... It was seminal in the sense that it was the first. I mean, I remember we were, you know, on a college campus and we had picked some mushrooms from the fields uh, behind the school. Didn't know if they were going to work. Had kind of heard it on urban legend from a biology professor who was clearly a sort of former hippie back in the day. And mm -hmm. um, and I just remember there's a cup pond, you know, so like a koi pond and it was nighttime and, and it was this beautiful old campus. And I remember like sticking my hand into the water and it mm. felt like, you know, like Terminator 2 where they, you know, he sticks his hand through <laughs> yeah. the Quicksilver. And I was like, oh my God, there's an entire new enchanted world and we're finally in it. Like, thank fucking God. And it was very much a return to being a little boy in England playing in the New Forest and, you know, Tolkien and hobbits and elves. But it was this just sense of a re-enchantment of the world. And for that, I was profoundly grateful. You know, the more memorable, pivotal sort of initiatory experience have taken place over time. Um, and those ones, you know, I for sure don't forget and return back to again and again and again, because, you know, like in the sort of indigenous sense, that's what's in my medicine pouch, right? Like those are the initiatory experiences that came to me, through me, whatever, and are pivot points in the development of my character, my life, my marriage, my relationship, my work in the world, my orientation and worldview. And even, you know, the books that I've written have all been really thinly veiled or maybe moderately veiled you know, efforts to translate the insights of those experiences into, you know, polite narrative nonfiction for the chattering classes. And what made you start the last book, the Recapture the Rapture book? I mean, and it was the pandemic and you probably had new insights, I mean, in this weird time, but what was the initial idea that you wanted to write it? Oh, that was really 100% reverse engineered from the processes described therein. So 
it mm -hmm. was actually seven or eight years of accidentally being sort of backdoor inducted into that set of practices, which started out disclosing to us how they worked and how they operated. So it was very didactic. Like you would get into those zones and domains and it'd be like, this is what you're doing. This is how this works. This is the neurophysiology. This is the chemical stuff. This is the history. This is the culture. Here's how you can teach it. Bah, 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 bah. And then it would show information on our life, you know, relationships with our children, relationships with each other, relationships with friends and social circles and networks. It very much felt like staring at a magic eight ball or staring at a sort of crystal ball. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is a literally a, a supra ordinary means of seeing and understanding information. And somewhere in the mix of that, I was like, oh, I think I actually need to write about this. And my wife would be like, you're crazy. Don't tell anyone. Don't, don't say this out loud. You, you'll be done for it. And then it would, you know, I'd set it aside and it would come back six months later. I'm like, I think I actually, like, I think this is the thing. I think I actually have to write about and disclose this. So the book is just, again, it's, a, it's an elaborate backbend because I couldn't write it that way. It would be obnoxious. You know, of like, I we were, you know, we had some profound, you know, pr prophetic epiphany, and here's from, you know, here's the information from on high. You know, you'd get you'd run out of town on a rail, quite rightly. Um, so I had to do all the contortions to make it fit into narrative nonfiction and to describe it as like, oh, I'm your humble narrator going off to look around the world. And along the way, we'll see, we'll meet a firefighter, we'll meet an underground BDSM, you know, kink dominatrix, we'll meet a couple of neuroscientists from Stanford and, you know, and, and, and a few base jumpers and divers, and they're going to show us what's on the cutting edge. Let's take a look. What do you say? Let's go, guys. That's not how it happened at all. Um, and, but as a result, you know, it, it's, it's a nonfiction book that is a lie that reveals the truth. And I could tell the truth more honestly in fiction at this point um, because of all just the problems of narration. Who, who are you presuming to say these things? And if you're just telling a story, it's just a story. Um, if, you're, if you're making any broad daylight truth claims, it all gets infinitely more problematic. And, and the whole premise of the book is let's get beyond individuals and sages on stages and cults of personality. So sharing or telling my series of personal experiences would be such mm -hmm. a pushy narrative, right? It would be sort of quite, quite odd and, 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 and sort of exceptional that, that it would skew and maybe even obscure the, the much more important point that I care about, which is how do we share open source, kind of the blockchain for conscious culture? How do we share that so everybody can do it? And never mind, you know, who it happened to show up in or occur to first. And how do you think, what is your, let's say, idea how this could work, The let's say, a more communal or open source storytelling for the new psychedelic world or industry or ecosystem? I mean, I mean, look, I wrote the book with the presumption that the psychedelic renaissance is dead on arrival. I mean, and, mm. and, and you could just, you could see all the trends three, four, five years ago. It was like, oh, this isn't going to work. And here's why. And that's market capture and, and all of the trends and the desanctification and the decoupling from any kind of sustainable culture and, and you know, all of these things. It's, it's a sweet sweet effort filled with tons of beautiful people and also tons of snakes and charlatans. And it's doomed 
by all of the blind spots and Achilles heels of the culture from which it sprang. And that's okay. My point isn't to simply rain on the entire parade. It's actually to say that this particular thrust, you know, what Compass is doing, what the, you know, Enatai and, and, and the various other players in the mix, what the various hype cycles, what the crypto bros are doing, like all of that stuff is just predictably tragic, extractive, idiotic, misguided, futile. And I know that sounds a bummer to say all those things so declaratively, but it's, it's after, you know, real consideration and watching the space and then seeing every single domino fall precisely like you would imagine it would. Um, and that's okay because the sacramental movements, both indigenous and kind of postmodern, those will continue and they will find some way forward. And the underground, you know, kind of mystics and misfit um, self-initiation trends, you know, things that for 50 years were mostly the province of, you know, it was Sasha and Ann Shulgin doing P-Call and T-Call and that kind of thing. It was the Grateful Dead and that traveling circus that just distributed LSD, you know, on mushrooms. They went to every new town. They provided an initiatory ritual of church. Everybody got lit up. And then every single kid who scored some family acid went back to their boarding school or went back to their little suburb and then lit up all their friends, you know, and you could just watch, you, know, you, could, you could just watch the heat map as those guys roamed the, roamed the earth dispensing fairy dust and initiatory ritual and not just initiatory ritual, but scripture, right? In the songs and in the lyrics, right? There was a worldview and the worldview was actually really specific and pronounced and absolutely antithetical to the psychedelic renaissance, to Instagram shamans and life coaches, to the entire milieu in which we find ourselves today, because it was humble. It was trickster based. It was, here's the human condition. There is the ineffable. Let the mystery stay the mystery. No one grabbed the ring. Right. And we're all here just bearing witness. And what do we know? Nothing left to do but smile, smile, smile. Right. Like it really was a beautiful postmodern mystery school. And, and so when we see people coming who are psychedelic novices, who were never part of that Grateful Dead community or culture, were never part of the Burning Man culture as it's involved globally, and they're coming into psychedelics because I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm whatever. Some medicalist, oh, I read Michael Pollan, so I thought I'd give it a go, or whatever it would be. They've got zero culture. And so everybody talks about integration, 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 not because anybody's doing it. They're crap at it because they're still massively overprivileging the chemical and the, the specific metabolic half-life of that experience. But there's no worldview. There's no pegs to hang that experience on. There's no way to live forwards. That's what scriptures do, right? Even non-denominational ones. Like they say, how ought I live? And what are the stories of others who have lived within this experience? How have they done it? Right. And most people coming in from that medical therapeutic model, or even just the curious psychedelic tourist late to the game now, um, have none of those reference points. And so they go to false certainty. They go to YouTube philosophy. They go to self-aggrandized egoic inflation of like, I'm a golden god, or it's me, or I've got the new downloads or the source codes or the whatever, and follow me and click on the link and note in the comments below. And like that nightmare. Mm. And, and so... We are seeing, you know, children at play in the fields of the Lord and carnival barkers at the garden gate. 
you know, selling tickets to the latecomers. Um, but it's all glass beads, you know, and very few pearls of great price. You're British, right? I mean, your insane language, <laughs> your fantastic language is just based on your, on you being born in Britain. I feel like every time I talk to British people, I learn 10 new words in one sentence. Well, it's a dull and dingy, rainy little island. And all we oh. had left after the sun did set on our empire was word <laughs> games and Oscar Wilde and Winston Churchill, right? So, yeah, I mean, there is for sure, there is, you know, in Monty Python and the fact that like half of Monty Python came from Oxford, half came from Cambridge. One had the kind of absurdist slapstick humor yeah. men dressing up as women that, and the other half was just like really sharp wordplay. So yeah, for sure coming out of those places. But then also, you know, it's not not informed um, by psychedelics and, you know, what Bob Marley and the Rastas would call word sound power. Mm -hmm. You know, all mm -hmm. one word, like word sound power. <laughs> And it's logos. It's the truth of invocatory, incantatory word made flesh. And when someone can invoke something um, via language that lands in another's heart and is, is recognized as true, then something else can happen. And you can crystallize reality out of the ineffable and into instantiation. Um, and from time to time, you know, um, seems to come into play also. Coming quickly back to your book, I think the most important, one of the most important words to me was the meaning 3.0, mm -hmm. which everybody kind of tries to define. Um, how would you say is your take on meaning 3.0? Yeah, well, then just to understand where the count of three comes from, the first mm -hmm. is organized religion. The second is modern liberalism. And the idea that both of those are sort of long in the tooth at this point and are under siege or collapsing. So what do we have that is post-denominational, meaning not specific to a set of fixed beliefs, um, but is more open source and experimental and experiential? And that is where the non-ordinary peak state ecstatic initiatory experience of which Psychedelics are a subset. You know, there's drumming, fasting, sleep deprivation, you know, all sorts of different, you know, sexuality, chanting prayer, devotion, nature mysticism. There's a, there's a gajillion ways to get to that state of which, you know, psychedelics are a sort of a known catalyst. And it's pretty, there's a pretty consistent neurophysiological signature of this stuff specifically high vagal nerve tone, generally delta wave brain activity. So damn near brain death, you know, sort of almost zero, zero hertz to four hertz, like in that range, which is often correlated with out of body experiences. Um, it's deep and dreamless sleep. It's yoga nidra, some very specific Dzogchen, you know, Tibetan meditative practices, which not many meditators get to. Um, most of us will just nod off or fall asleep and power down. But if you can be aware and awake, Carl Dyseroth at Stanford has done this with ketamine and, and found people in those states, that three hertz delta range, but then gone back without the ketamine and done electrical stimulation of the brain zones and then prompted similar out-of-body experiences. Um, MIT has done some fascinating work on nitrous oxide and has found that that will, if you, if you respirate 50-50 oxygen and nitrous oxide, 
after several minutes, once you're kind of in a saturated state, then your brainwaves will just go into double amplitude delta for three to 12 minutes, after which your body adapts and normalizes. But for that three to 12 minutes, you're into the land that William James and Winston Churchill and bunches of other folks played with, with nitrous oxide, which is essentially a realm of gobsmacked amazement and nonstop epiphany. And so you're like, oh, okay. So um, arguably, you know, back to you're damn nearly brain dead. This is as close to a near-death experience as you can get simulated you know, other than sort mm-hmm. of, you know, the accidental catastrophes. And when you're in that state, it appears to be incredibly information rich, filled with pattern recognition, connection, insight, ranging from cosmic. I mean, William James founded the entire field of comparative religion and optimal psychology based on his nitrous oxide experiences. So it's not, a, it's, it's not, not massively generative, right? The death rebirth practice around the world different recipes, but similar signature and similar interiority was always a super closely guarded secret. You know, whether it was the Western magical traditions, whether it was the Lucinian mysteries, whatever it would be, it was for a tiny, tiny elect, elect group. It was never published or discussed. It was always kept incredibly close to the vest. And then that became the knower priest class with asymmetric access to the sacred who then dictated to the peasants, this is what you need to believe and here's why. And it was completely wrapped up in mythologies. This is what it means, right? This is where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Spin around three mm-hmm. times, cut the head off a few chickens, you know, bow down, you know, kick down in the collection plate on mm-hmm. Sunday and you two may be blessed or not. And there was this both wrapping of it in impossible to verify truth claims, you know, the mythologies and a very partial understanding of the actual mechanisms of action, the technologies. And so here's your death rebirth protocol. Anybody with household materials can blow yourself to God consciousness and and then see what happens. It has the capacity, and this comes back to your initial question of what is meaning 3.0, right? Which is a complete inversion of religiosity through all of human history, which instead of receiving tops down distribution of hand-me-down wisdom, from the breakthrough insights of a founder or of a you know descendant priest class or a hierarchic priest class, you can actually say, stuff the lot. Here's the protocol. Go see for yourself, mm-hmm. right? Here's how to rub two sticks together and create your very own burning bush. What does it speak to you? And that is a wild inversion of all hierarchic religiosity from the past and a potential for grassroots bottoms up do-it-yourself faith. Okay. And this is exactly what we talked about earlier. Like, okay, you, you have your personal experience, but it's connected to a bigger experience of a bigger group, which is to me a super interesting thing, a word or expression this ethical cult building, because I feel like, especially in the last months, I hear a lot of other podcasts or also in the companies that are built that obviously um, the community that people kind of almost need to um, get the most out of their personal psychedelic experience, the need for this seems to be on rise. You don't not only have like, here's your pure personal psychedelic experience, but also Here's your breath work that is happening before. Here's your yeah, community um, weekly meetings where you can talk to other people, what they experience. 
And in my perception, the ethical cult building, I mean, it is one of the most important things that needs to happen in the next months or years, I don't know, around the psychedelics coming into the world in a new way. Uh-huh. Obviously, you, you wrote about it that there's often cults creating out of these kind of you know new developments. But maybe you can talk a little bit about this, how you came up with this specific expression. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the first was, is disambiguating, right? The t- different terms and meanings around cult. And because, you know, my background was in anthropology, studying, mm-hmm. you know, wisdom traditions, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, if you're talking about it historically, there's the cult of Kali, the cult of Dionysus, the cult of Artemis, whatever it would be. There's just little communities of practice around different mystery schools. And that wasn't a pejorative. That wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Those were longstanding, healthy, vibrant traditions. And the way it was typically played was as an initiate, you subjugated yourself, right? You submitted to the lineage, right? This thing's been going on for centuries to millennia. And that's what you bow down to. You bow down to the God, but you also bow down to the extended body of that practice. So it was buffered in lineage. And then in the 20th century, you know, really picking up steam in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you had this kind of mix mashing of East and West. And then, so you had Eastern teachers like Chogyam Trungpa, uh, Bhagwan, Rajneesh, right? all, all those kind of mm-hmm. places, right? You had all of mm-hmm. them coming from the East and quite often chopping their lineages off behind them as they came. So they might, mm-hmm. you know, or they were outside, they were playing hooky from their teachers, you know, so like, so they could kind of get away with whatever they said. And you had a bunch of naive Westerners just lapping it up, so hungry for that reconnection. And then you also had Westerners like Adi Da, you know, and others jumping into those structures, yeah, I am a guru. This is satsang. You're sitting in front of an awakened master. You need to, you know, dig karma yoga or, you know, dedication to the temple or the practice or whatever. And and so even Westerners also just took it on and aped it and used those wildly dysfunctional hierarchies, you know, formulated 500 years ago in a monastery in Thailand or Tibet or whatever, and just transplanted them into modern Western society. And that was subjugate yourself still, right? But now it was to a solitary guru you know, unbounded and ungrounded by the checks and balances of a lineage. And that obviously became super, super problematic. And that's the, you know, the Charlie Mansons and the Helter Skelter. It's the Jim Joneses and the Drinking the Kool-Aid. And that's where we get culty cults. And we see, you know, we've even seen, you know, all the Netflix and HBO documentaries yeah, course, yeah. that have been yeah. everywhere, you know, in the last few years. And you're studying and you're seeing lots of postmortems on that. And that's where most of the conversation has stopped. Just this assumption of, and, and by the way, I mean, interestingly, like in Latin, cultus just means to worship. So you're like, okay, so back to David Foster Wallace, where he's like, everybody worships. The only question is what? And be careful because, you know, you better choose something good to worship, you know, because if it's just money or fame or or power or whatever, it's going to eat you alive. You better choose something spiritual to worship. So this goes back to meaning 3.0, right? If we now have widely distributed access to techniques of ecstasy, right? Tools that pop you into non-ordinary, magical, mystical, initiatory experiences or states, then we better get really good and much, much better at figuring out how we worship, how we cult, right? So everybody cultuses. The only question is is how. So an ethical cult, right, could be um, instead of subjugating yourself to anybody, 
at this point. We don't. We actually deepen our own agency and responsibility, right? And at the same time, how do I how do I deepen my own agency and learn to drop into communitas, learn to drop into group mind or group flow without losing my own bearings? Because typically those experiences of merging with a collective whether it's at a, you know, at a soccer game, you know, I'm a soccer hooligan yeah, sure. and I'm chanting, yeah. our faces are painted and we're all chanting and we will our team to win at the penalty strikes at the end. And we're like, yeah, it happened. Right. There's that, there's political rallies from, you know, from Trump to Nuremberg, right. Those sweep people up and, and create all sorts of neurochemistry, right. A boost in, in dopamine and a spike in serotonin, especially for people who have had social status and security eroded via isolation and a loss of economic status and all that kind of stuff. And it creates a reduction in caring. It boosts oxytocin. Like I'm fired up for my tribe. And Molly Crockett, who was at Oxford and is now at Yale, actually spoke at Davos a few years ago, mapping this exact pattern out. And, and another one of the things is, is everybody thinks of oxytocin as the trust hormone and the love drug and the cuddle molecule. Um, you know, and it bonds mother to baby and it bonds lover to lover, but it also bonds to tribe, like tribe member to tribe member. And when mm -hmm. people are high on dopamine and oxytocin in particular, those two, dopamine reduces hyper altruism. So I'm willing to be shittier to other people. The same way somebody, you know, coked up at a party is generally yeah. not that empathetic. Wow. And, high, <laughs> and high oxytocin increases the likelihood of me wanting to beat up, shame, or troll someone who's not in my tribe. So it's, it's in no way just fluffy bunnies and rainbows for oxytocin. So you see all these things and you're like, okay, those are the potential drivers and dynamics. Like after oxytocin, right, everything else is fragile and elective. So tribalism is destiny. Humanism is optional. And the question is, is we get into these peak states and these non-nori states, and especially if you don't have a lineage, because like, what would what would most teachers do, right? Some student would either get lucky or they're really talented. They'd have some Kensho, Satori state. They'd have some big badass breakthrough. And then they'd usually have to go and sit in front of their teacher or teachers. What'd you see? What'd you think? What'd you notice? And they'd pressure test them. And they'd check to see if their understanding was stable, if it was realized, if it was going to their head, if they'd missed things, if they got upside down, right? If they'd fucked it up in some way they weren't aware, right? There would be a vetting process. But we don't have that anymore. So quite often, people are having these very, very powerful opening experiences, typically with way less preparation and context than they might have had to if they'd had to sort of earn them. You know, the Jungian caution mm -hmm. of beware of unearned wisdom, right? The psychedelic movement is up to its ears in unearned wisdom and people live streaming about it, you know, before their feet have even touched the ground. And then it's typically going into narcissistic and egoic inflation, Right. So, so we're getting these metastasized um, egos who are then presuming to grab that one ring, like in Tolkien, right? No, mm -hmm. the, you, you know, all the wise ones, right? The elven queen and the wise wizard, no, don't grab the fucking ring. Even if you think you could do good things with it, don't grab the ring. And then, right, it's who does? It's the human. It's Baromir who's like, I've got aspirations to grandeur. I want to be the king. I think I could do so much with it, right? He's the one who's tempted.
And that's where we are. We're with a bunch of mediocre wannabes grabbing the ring via psychedelic inflation, throwing it into the force multiplier, the narcissistic echo chamber of social media, often bent or further corrupted by market mechanics. How do I charge lots of people for my workshop or, or my downloads or my thingamajigger um, or my new clinic, right? Or we're going to scale, we're going to raise money. We're going to raise money. We're going to get rich dudes high as kites on Bufo <laughs> or Aya. And then when they're massively vulnerable and they're imprinting on us because they think we're actually the sources of all that light and power, we're going to pry open their checkbooks and get them to fund our projects. Right, and if every yeah. if everybody in the psychedelic space had to give back all the money they got from hive investors, the entire fucking movement would come to a screeching halt. And then the money that came sober are usually from like Sith Lord VCs, yeah. you know, and, and and who are just wanting ROI and are just seeing this as the next growth industry after cannabis crashed. So ethical cults, right? Which is how do we do this in a way? right? Where no one grabs the ring and we put these experiences in their proper context. They are both sort of simultaneously um, everything and nothing. And I don't mean that in a sort of pseudo Zen way. I mean, in the midst of it, they are the everything. They can be the most profound life shaping, you know, and inspired experiences of our lives. And they are wholly inadequate um, as a single panacea to address the challenges and the problems in the world that we face together. And so if you take, um, I mean, as I said, everybody's yammering about integration and nobody's doing it, but really, what are we looking at here? We're looking at an existential crisis at a scope and scale that no humans have had to wrap their heads around ever, and we're having an awful lot of people with what is, you know, is actually now in the clinical manuals. It's in the DSM-5, known as adjustment disorder, which is simply the idea that there's been a bad thing that's happened. It's been at least six months since it's happened, and you're still not good with it. That's adjustment disorder in a nutshell. And how many of us are reeling from the last two or three years, throw in Brexit and Trump, throw in UN climate reports, throw in fires and floods and famine, throw in climate refugees and war, throw mm -hmm. in mass violence and shooting. Like it's, it is, we are in the long disaster. So the notion that psychedelics will somehow fix us, cure us or save us is, is woefully inadequate. The very best it can do is remind us of what we've forgotten right? That's that experience of anamnesis, literally the forgetting of the forgetting. So, oh my gosh, you know, I've been so busy, so distracted, so beaten mm -hmm. down. I come up on the mountaintop and I remember now, I pick up the stitch I dropped. This is mine to do. It gives us a printout of where we're banged up and broken, right? So like it's that, the old Suzuki Roshi, like you're perfect as you are and you could use a little work, so we get both, right? We get, we get, I am whole, deserving and worthy of love and filled with inspiration. Wonderful feeling to have. And I could use a little work. I got things to do to patch my bones. And, and then connection 
to our brothers and sisters what must be done. And it mm -hmm. feels to me like the, the, a lot of the hype on the psychedelic movement is simply because we have, we desanctified the world, right? We, we, in front, you can pin it back to, you know, Descartes if you want to, but like reductionist materialism, I think, therefore I am, nothing else is real. So the desanctification of at least the Western world has spent several centuries in the making, but really super duper accelerated in the 20th century and then went apeshit when we got smartphones and social media, right? So we have completely atrophied our experiences of and connections to the sacred. So your initial hits of the psychedelic experience are like, oh, it's literally fresh water to a starving person in the desert. You're like, it's, it's everything. But once you get past going from deficient, like massively deficient to threshold sufficed, you don't get much more return on that investment. And in fact, you can get willier, you can get softer around the edges, you can get distracted into magical thinking or egoic inflation. There's actually contraindications. It's the Paracelsus thing of the difference between a tonic and a toxin is the dose. So initially re-sacralizing our existence profoundly valuable. But going back to that wishing well again and again and again and again, in the hopes that it solves for all of our other existential realities and challenges, that's naive, I think. And, and, and we get that Pareto split of the 80-20. 20% of your first experiences on psychedelics or any radical cathartic thing. It could be encounter therapy sessions. It could be some form of intersubjective dialogue. It could be some radical therapeutic modality or Vipassana or whatever it might be. But anyway, that you get 80% of your benefit from your first 20% of dabbling in that space. But most people, we don't, we don't think in Pareto terms. No one has, a, there's not a little asterisk up front when you sign up. You're just like, oh, I did 20% and I got this huge return. That's amazing. So I'm going to keep doing it because in, at this rate, my entire world will be transformed by next Christmas. And then the reality is that's not what happens. You get the inversion of the Pareto you know, ratio. And now I've got to devote 80% more time and effort to get a 20% dwindling return. And that's more time, that's more money, that's more discombobulation. And I go chasing more bigger states. I'm like, oh, mushrooms did it, the f or MDMA did it the first time. Maybe I need mushrooms, psilocybin, maybe microdosing, maybe ayahuasca. I've heard about DMT, DMT, 5-MeO-DT. That's even better than that. Where can I go and get that one? Ketamine, I've been <laughs> and, and people just start chasing that's how it goes, yeah. the dragon. Mm -hmm. And the dragon is a trickster and, and never comes back to give us what we need, which is, uh, can we be 80-20 right? Awoken to broken. Can we say, hey, I now know enough to remember what's mine to do. I also have enough insight to understand where I've been broken, out of whack, out of integrity, you know, what I need to fix so that I'm not in my own way or creating unintentional collateral damage in the world to others. And then can I just get up and start helping versus chasing the never-ending long tail of my imagined perfectibility. Because mm. it ultimately becomes bougie, entitled as fuck, and self-indulgent. 
Because if I'm, an, if I'm privileged enough to have even just options like this to even contemplate, then turn around and think, who, you know, I'm trying to get my head above the clouds on this delusional trip that if I do, all my problems are solved and nothing will ever be hard. I'll have the partner of my dreams. I'll have effortless economic abundance. Yeah. I'll live in that house sure. in Bali, just like I saw in that Airbnb, <laughs> right? All those things, it all go away. And maybe, maybe I won't even have to deal with a global existential crisis because me and my buddies, we're going to vibrate to the fifth density in Ibiza or a bunny man and we're just going to peace out of this whole fucking thing and we're going to be living in Atlantis right so 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 there's all that versus head above the clouds versus turning around and helping other people that are less fortunate that have less options just get their heads above the water they're drowning right and there's so much need in the world for halfway fixed folks to step up and be useful that this right this this delusion of our infinite perfectibility is a real pathology of our current psychedelic movement and you think about it you're like oh at no point in human history ever have these kind of super duper powerful initiatory tools ever been dispensed outside of a profoundly ethical framework of dedicated service and sacrifice like that was always the cost of admission. If you were mm. going to be the muckety muck into the secret, super secret, thirty-four degree of the Masons, or you know, or whatever it would be, it would be like, are you are you in? Because this is a blood oath, right? To honor what you're about to be shown. And now we just sign up and fucking bugger off for a weekend retreat and come back and tweet about it. Just give us a moment, and we will be right back with you and to show. But I wanted to tell you about something. The New Health Club is a proud supporter of the International Therapeutic Psilocybin Rescheduling Initiative, a global coalition working to reschedule psilocybin under the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances, with partner organizations such as MAPS, the Beckley Foundation, and Drug Science. ITPRI is working bring down barriers to advancing psychedelic medicine. Please check them out at reschedulingpsilocybin.org and consider donating to support their work. I repeat, please go to reschedulepsilocybin.org and please donate to them because they're very important for the whole psychedelic industry. And now back to the show. But I mean, still, it's very interesting. I read an article about you uh, from 2017 from New York Times um, and it was called How to Hack Your Brain for oh, 5K. Uh -huh. That was such a shitty so, hatchet yeah, job title. Yeah, it's a title. shitty article. Oh. But what's interesting is that it was 2017 and the article was still like super kind of, you know, this dry irony, like, oh, does he really mean that? And it's so interesting because I feel in the last three, four years, the tone has completely changed because the desperation has grown to find meaning, to find tools, how to cope. I mean, what you said earlier with, with the last, let's say, easy three, four years, what's happening and what is still happening. So, um, but what's interesting there is that, I mean, it, it already talks about you working with CEOs and um, leadership people from companies. So um, what would you say has changed in the last years when you work with company founders, 
C-level CEOs, leadership people in, in this field? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's been an, another hatchet job where some, some group of like, you know, agitator, uh, psychedelic lefties, like literally photoshopped a Goldman Sachs logo on my chest as long, along with the SEAL Team 6 thing. Oh, and I, and wow. I, I like that I was some like patsy for, for the kind of neoliberal cabal. And I was, I was mm-hmm. like, guys, I'm completely right there with you. And, and if you just ask me, I'll tell you what I said to those guys. Because I went into both of those, you know, powerhouse places and absolutely rang their bell. I was not in any way going to be collecting a speaking fee to blow sunshine up their asses. And, and yet they just, they couldn't handle it. They needed to be the rebels. They needed to do the slay the father thing. And it's like, oh, come on, this isn't even interesting. But um, something that I, I did spend sort of, let's think 2007 to 2012, um, working within the conscious capitalism community. So this was mm-hmm. founded by John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods. And it was kind of this intention yeah. just to be trying to use business as an engine for good. My entire experience before that had been as a mountain guide. My wife's a Montessori teacher. We were living simply in the mountains. I didn't want to engage in quote unquote Babylon at all. And so was always, you know, radically countercultural. You know, like my dream was like buy a mining claim, put a yurt and a solar panel, like ski in, ski out, like be living, you know, like just the life we lived and chose. So kind of came down the mountain when we had children and I'm like, okay, like, like, I suppose we need to re-engage the world. I, we could raise our kids at 10,000 feet in the mountains where they were born, but I kind of feel like I don't want to have taken away their choices right? As to how they want to engage the world. So there's this kind of just, you know, trade-offs and, and in service and all that kind of stuff. And I spent five plus years working within, you know, some of the more interesting, elite, intentional, quote unquote, conscious companies, mm-hmm. uh, at least in North America and, and some in Europe and, and Australia as well. And just watched and, you know, doing year-long development programs with executives, having direct, this wasn't coming in through HR and just doing like a one day. This was like multi-year sustained engagements to help these organizations do what Bob Keegan at Harvard talks about of deliberately developmental organizations, like, you know, working with Otto Scharmer and Theory U at MIT, like all the good, all the best shit out there that you could be hopeful about. And just realized, oh shit, no man, it's, it's fucking cap tables and governance all day long. If the dotted line was signed and the money guys and the board are expecting this to be optimized Friedman style for maximum shareholder value, that is what's going to happen. And in good times, when there's excess, maybe they'll feel benevolent and they can sprinkle a little pixie dust into human development stuff. And in hard times, they're going to turn the cranks and that's the first shit to go. And most of these CEOs, even ones who were fervent quote-unquote believers, right? At the end of the proverbial day, they wanted a better relationship with their wife and their children. And not one of them was willing to kill the golden goose that put the Porsche in the driveway or, or the house in Beaver Creek. And that was just the structure. And so I basically gave up on corporate America um, as any engine of meaningful progress. It's just, it's a lie that well-intentioned consultants tell themselves. 
and God bless him. You have to, everybody has to get up in the morning and brush your teeth in the mirror, but it's complete and utter bullshit. And I mean, you know, the, the pivot point for me was working with one CEO he was a member of Young President's organization, that global organization. Mm-hmm. And he had gone with the Pachamama Alliance, Lynn Twist, who's a big, you know, grandmother uh, elder in the whole field of conscious capitalism, sustainability, triple bottom line philanthropy, rainforest preservation, protection of indigenous cultures. And this guy went down to the rainforest with his two teenage boys, little panga up the river, like boondocky, boondocky, like a couple of days of travel in the jungle to get to the semi-intact tribe who was there because of Lynn offering ayahuasca ceremonies, has this experience with his sons profoundly healing, expanding, and then Lynn does what Lynn's there to do, which is hits everybody up at the end for, hey, are you willing to give back? Are you willing to take some of your extreme abundance and just some small fraction, can you deliver it to these folks and help protect these lifeways and protect this beautiful ecosystem? And he was conflicted. He's like, it was like 250 grand for protecting like 200 hectares or something of land. So there it was, that was the ask. And he went back to his YPO forum and he's like, guys, I'm so conflicted. I just had this experience. Here was the ask. It's $250,000. But on the other hand, I just put in an order for a brand new Ferrari Italia. And ever since I was a little boy, I've always loved Ferraris and I've always imagined having one one day. And eight, to zero, that fucking group of executives said, bro, you deserve the Ferrari. Yeah. And it came and <laughs> it stayed in his enamel, you know, painted dr- garage and was driven precisely 1,253 miles before he realized it was going to depreciate. And then he sold it four years later. And meanwhile, the Amazon burns and he goes to burning man instead. And you're like, okay, this is human nature. And so anybody who is attempting to steer this ship uh, via shareholder capitalism. There's also this whack, whack ass backlash now around triple bottom line. There's this guy, Vivek Rathaswamy, I think. He wrote a book called Woke Inc. Mm -hmm. And we were actually at an event. This was one of the few kind of, you know, gigs I've taken in the last several years. And it was to a bunch of family offices, high net worth folks, but the people organizing it were like, we follow your stuff and we really want you to say what you say to this group of people. So I'm like, okay, I will. Um, And Vivek, his whole thesis is capitalism has been hijacked by social justice warriors. And he's using like Jamie Dimon and Larry Fink and, you know, like not exactly the most groovy dudes you've ever thought of in your life as poster children for this hijack and how it is a travesty of bottom line shareholder freedman capitalism and a violation of the sacred, sacred, you know, contract of maximizing, you know, maximizing profits and returns for the business model. So we're actually, we are in the midst of, and we'll be experiencing more of a total backlash by the ultra elite ruling class who are not even down with the greenwashing of the Davos set or Mm -hmm. the conscious capitalism set. One analyst was like, do you realize what they've done? Just at the flip of a switch, they've liquidated all the assets of the Russian oligarchs. Who's next? Saudi princes? Uh, tech billionaires? It could be you next. It was literally oh, like, wow. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was literally like the late, the last days in Versailles. And they're like, let them eat cake. 
you know, but we get to keep our shit. And so, I mean, long story short, I think that the game theoretic structures and incentives and sadly case law, right? Like that's not an insignificant thing. The, the case law of the last century has created such perverse incentives and such lopsided protections for corporatism. Um, I mean, and most people don't even realize it was like that Friedman thing of like the sole job of a corporation is to deliver maximum shareholder value back to its people. That was an op-ed in the fucking New York Times in 1970. It was just an idea. Oh, wow. Okay. It wasn't until 1974 that we're 1975. I think it was 74 where Revlon, the hair product company, actually had the definitive case where that shit went to trial and there had been activist shareholders saying, you're doing too many goofy things and we deserve absolute maximum return on our investment. This is happening with Elon and Twitter right now as well, right? You're starting to get those kinds of things. And then you realize, oh my gosh, this all goes back to the 14th Amendment in the United States, which was famously about guaranteeing rights to formerly freed slaves slaves. And then there's no mention of corporations as persons in this. 15 years later, there is a new legal case by Leland Stanford, the founder of Stanford University. He's a railroad baron, and they were going to get taxes on the railroad. And he cucks up this bullshit legal theory of that's discriminatory because you're taxing us because we're railroads. And that's like discriminating against persons, people like the slaves that you talked about in the 14th Amendment. And the one lawyer lied about it. He, he, was, he was the last living guy who had been a judge court at the passing of the 14th Amendment. And he's like, all those other dudes are dead, but let me tell you what they really meant. What they really meant when they switched it from citizens to persons, what they meant was to include corporations and then fudge the details. And then that became new case law. So our entire, and now we're seeing, right, we're seeing in Ecuador, in India, even some cases in Florida and the US, the suing on behalf of watersheds, the idea that natural places have rights, all that kind of stuff. And it's seen as really weird and wacky slash good, depending on the side mm -hmm. of the fence. Like mm -hmm. it's no less weird that we've run an entire century thinking that corporations have the rights of people. And it was founded on a lie and the shakiest case precedents ever and yet that has created all of our incentive structures for how this system runs today. And it's why corporate leaders, no matter how awake, compassionate, or caring they may be personally, why they cannot get outside the OODA loop or the feedback loop of their own governance, their own quarterly reporting, and their own quote-unquote fiduciary responsibility to a board who just wants the biggest bite of the apple they can get. So having said that, Coaches coming to you to um, engage in, you know, like the, the flow theory and actually get an education from you, you could say, mm. as a coach. Well, we don't coach. We're not coaches. We train people for sure. But people come to you who are coaches who actually would like to implement this in their coachings, right? So, and what is the most important thing you train these people? And, and do you actually have a selection Or you say to some people, well, I don't want to work with you. All day long, yeah, because okay. you get the hungry mm -hmm. ghost who just want to fucking strip a logo or a certificate to then go and pimp their transactional wares. So we say that all the time. We're like, we are explicitly not. Like, if you're a lifestyle coach, an info marketer, want to be like, just fuck off now. 
Like you, we ab, you absolutely mm-hmm. should not come anywhere near us. And if we smoke you out, if we, if we sense that that's where your orientation is, we'll show you the door. Um, so who we work with much more often, are entrepreneurs attempting to build deliberate, good impact organizations, people in the helping professions. So psychiatrists, psychologists, mm-hmm. doctors, nurses, um, lots of independent folks, artists, various other people doing things. And then, you know, some portion inevitably that are transitioning out of a less meaningful job and then seeking, okay, who's my community? What are the conversations I'm, you know, yearning to have? And then now what do I do? And, you know, fundamentally we're like, look, here's a, here's a software upgrade, right? It's sort of agnostic (laughs) Gnosticism, right? And we Mm -hmm. teach, you know, we teach, um, we just finished a course yesterday, which is one of the ones Mm -hmm. that is literally the intersubjective software. So we teach, how do you become vitalized and aligned and integrated as an individual? And that's the, you know, what would be default thought of as biohacking and personal optimization, but we have a, you know, fairly specific non-hypey take on that. And that's the first key thing. Can you keep your tanks charged up so you are resourced and resourceful? Then there's the, now, if we have these peak states, if we have flow states individually, collectively, whatever, how do we actually manage doing the human thing together? Real world, Monday morning, making hard decisions, trade-offs, money, power, influence, complexity, imperfect information, shadow dynamics, tribal politics, like that stuff, the human stuff. And we've just taken from 20 years, the best stickiest things that we've found from Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, SEAL teams, mountaineering, best practices, like real world people doing real world stuff. And here's half a dozen tools that work again, you know, 80% of the time, right? That Mm -hmm. the 20% is just human integrity, character, and figuring it out. Um, But there's 80% of the stuff that arises in human tribal situations and dynamics that's pretty predictable. And there are ways to scaffold our behavior, meaning I'm going to use a tool that helps lift me up and stabilize me, um, like training wheels on a bicycle or like spell check for a dyslexic, right? They, they help me fly straighter and better. And we can all play a higher level, better game as a result of that. And then there's the individual or collective initiatory practices, which is now we're getting into the, you know, what would be known as the realm of metaphysics, like the non-ordinary. And here are some tools for you to make better sense of that. And, you know, I wrote about them in Recapture the Rapture, but it's, you know, Occam's Razor and Pascal's Wager and Bayesian Probability. Like, here's a good way to F the ineffable, right? Here's a good way to contemplate, not profound non-ordinary states or complexity and not lose your bearings. Here's tools and practices that let you ground your relationship to some of these things and then integrate them into a life of service. And then we basically are saying, hey, truth in advertising, folks, there is no way and none of us get out of here alive. So, you know, we want to make sure that even if we share with you blinky, shiny, cool, exciting tools and models and experiences and community that really leaves you fired up and feeling like you found the thing, you know, just to realize, hey, it's it's not this either. And it is a never-ending cycle of peak experiences, healing, and connection. And we're just getting trundled along through life you know, experiencing the tragedies, nearly getting knocked down, 
you know, experiencing healing and inspiration and finding the will to go on again, seeking solace and comfort and connection with each other. And, you know, the full catastrophe is what Zorba the Greek called it, right? And it's like, well, do you want to sign up for that? Because if we can find our way through that with a clear-eyed look, like no fudging it, no bypassing it, no pretending it's, it's anything different, then we have a chance to kind of anchor in something that's hopefully more durable than naive escapism. And that would be radical hope. You know, like how do we ultimately land on a sense of motivation and solace, right, that is durable enough to meet reality as it's unfolding and not just crumple. It's just a choice to say, okay, I am signing up for a walk-on part in the war, right? I am stepping out of a lead role in my cage, to paraphrase Pink Floyd, right? That old tune, right? Like, I'm choosing this, and I'm choosing to do this, you know, and in fact, there's a beautiful quote from the Talmud, so the, the, the old uh, Hebrew sacred texts, um, which, which to me sums up everything we have to share. It says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not expected to finish the work, nor are you excused from it. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of, that's the ball game, right? That's, that sums yeah. it up. And, and the question is, right, is, it, is if we didn't, like, like, if we just faced the enormity of the world's grief by ourselves, disconnected from each other and disconnected from source, it would crush us. We would succumb to mm. diseases of despair. We'd slit our own wrist tomorrow. If you just did the simple maths, it's overwhelming. Mm. But if you pursue basically ecstasis, the peak experience, and you ground it in communitas, the shared experience, right? That's what gives us the buffer. That's what gives us the inspiration and the community to keep going. And no matter how whacked or weird our current moment feels, you know, we can take comfort in, you know, the wandering Jews, the Ashkenazi, the Kurds, right? The Roma, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, like take your pick, you know, around the world, any, any indigenous cultures that have kept their life ways going over generations of suffering and displacement. If you look into any of those cultures, they have stories, they have songs, they have rituals that remind them of the good times in the past, that remind them of the purpose of the journey and keep the flame, right, for the generations yet to come. And so if we really want to talk about integration and the future of psychedelic renaissance and all those kind of things, it would, for me, it would come back to that, which is like, hey, you're about to have an initiatory experience of coming home, of being welcomed. This is, you know, Alex Haley's book, Roots, you know, where, where the opening scene in, in Gambia is that, is the African, the son, I mean, the, or the father of Kunta Kinte, and he holds the newborn infant up to this gorgeous Milky Way. And he says, behold, Kunta Kinte, the only thing in the universe greater than you. Right? So like, psychedelics can provide that. They can provide that sense of both coming home in a cosmic sense, and a sense of connection to community, of fellow 
initiates or practitioners. And then it's a little bit like now we're mixing metaphors. We're going from, <laughs> you know, 17th century yeah, Africa good. to the, to the matrix. But like, there's, there's a little bit like, okay, so you're an Avada goo. You're a socially conditioned zoo animal. We're going to unplug you. Right. And the, with, with the red pill or whatever problematized these days with, with men's and incel groups, but the original Gnostic red pill. And the good news is, is you can learn Kung Fu and you can fucking fly. That's rad, right? Like it's awesome. <laughs> and that's analogous to the, you know, the pretty lights of the psychedelic experience. The bad news is the machines are coming and they're coming tomorrow night. So <laughs> hugs and high fives, welcome home, dry you off, you know, with a towel, you get one, you get a weekend honeymoon with your new self right? And on Monday, report to the front lines because you're needed. Yeah, that's going to be the problem with a lot of retreats, I guess, right? What you just said, like, I mean, that you have this kind of three days to up to a week, and then you leave that again. We're just missing a higher calling or a purpose and an ethic of service. So what do most people do? Instead of saying, hey, you're so lucky. We're all so lucky. This is amazing, isn't it? And absolutely, like, celebrate that moment. But it's a moment. And then yeah. you're needed. There are other people that haven't yet or may never get the experience you just had. We are all blessed. So we are needed in service. Because without this anchor of service to the least of our brothers and sisters, service to the four-leggeds and the two-leggeds and the winged and the finned, you know, and the rivers and the mountains without end, right? Unless we have that anchor, we just go back to, well, what else is there for me? And, and we just go back into narcissistic solipsism where we're just crawling up our own assholes, right? To, to chase our own perfectibility. And that is, you know, it's a losing proposition on the best of days, But now we're just straight up out of time. We don't have time for that anymore. And at the same time, we have access to the most powerful technologies of ecstasy mm. that any humans on this earth have ever had full stop. And if all we can do with them is create more diversions and distractions like we're out of bullets there isn't anything that i can conceive of that is more powerful than buffo and if that's not dropping people to their knees and prompting them to take vows of poverty chastity humility and service and sign away their entire net worth to whatever cause they feel alleviates the suffering of the world as a bodhisattva must then we're doing it wrong I want to quickly come back to what you said, that people come to your training that are transitioning out of a certain maybe high-powered career to a new calling or kind of company they're even building that is more, but is a different one that they had built years before. So, and um, I mean, I'm sure you, you also heard of this expression that is going around like the great resignation where people actually started to leave jobs that in very brief description now didn't mean anything to them anymore or made them even sick before mm -hmm. the pandemic. They didn't realize it. Maybe in the pandemic, they realized it. So do you feel that more people are coming to your trainings um, that have exactly that um, background or that need to change in their career or jobs or lives? Yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, we, we tend to discourage kind of looky-loos. When I was younger, I was trained in surf rescue, right? And one of the first rules of thumb when you swim out into the ocean to rescue a drowning person is that your rescue boy, that, you know, that orange thing with the rope around you, right? Mm -hmm. Like that the drowning person never gets to touch the lifeguard, right? They get that floating boy on the end of that rope and that's as close as they get to you. Because if they try and come to you and they're panicked, they will yeah. drown you climbing yeah. to daylight and then you're both stuffed. So we try not to, I mean, sometimes maybe we frustrate people, but we send everybody home at the end. You know, we're like, this is not a life raft. This is a training ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it is on you to stand on your own two feet. Like our goal is to help people go from what, again, Keegan at Harvard would call from socially defined. Like I'm just running scripts, programs, obligations of my family, my culture, my, my profession, whatever it would be. And to self-authoring, like I'm actually picking up the pen and I'm taking responsibility for writing my own story. And that's it. It's a very straightforward move. And yes, there are higher, more, you know, grandiose levels, but we don't even bother talking about them. Because if you're writing your own story, you'll find the more you won't, you know, but pre-wiring them ahead of time is, is not helpful. And I mean, the great resignation, I think, you know, it, it shows up in a lot of headlines. It's actually all sorts of things happening simultaneously. So one of the first is, you know, there's clear arguments that there's no great resignation happening. What you're happening is a bunch of baby boomers are retiring early and exiting the workforce. And then a bunch <laughs> of younger folks are exiting entry level, what David Graeber called bullshit jobs. And they're just simply getting better jobs. You know, mm -hmm. so all the, you know, whether it's cleaning ladies at the, you know, hotel or, or, or people in fast food restaurants, like those are getting vacated. So there's a demographic shift that is actually masking what's actually going on. And then you've also got, you know, millennials to Gen Zers who are potentially, you know, wildly misguided as to what a job is. Um, and, you know, that's Carol Dweck's work. She did an interesting article in The Atlantic because she's famous for having advanced the theory of fixed and growth mindsets that most people are familiar with. But she's like, it's not just, you know, abstract learning where that shows up. It also shows up in like choosing a life partner and choosing a job. And that millennials, you know, infected by the boomeritis of their parents, right, came to believe that their job should be effortlessly joyful every day. They should spring out of work. They should be profoundly fulfilled and gratified. And the moment there's a lick of drudgery, they're going to complain to their boss that they're not being self-actualized in all times at real time. And so her point was like, that's a fixed mindset too. Like the idea that you make meaning and purpose by learning and doing hard things and gutting it out, that's important. And the same thing happening even with mate selection. Right. And, and I think David Brooks wrote something complimentary to that in the Times a few years ago, where he was like, Yeah, it used to be, you know, marriage was social contracts, pairing, convenience, that kind of stuff. Then there was this Tristan and Azult, you know, like notion of romantic love, and that became more and more true. So we married for love. And then there was that sense of now it's not just love, it's literally full and total self-actualization. You're responsible for my becoming. And if I am not becoming everyone and everything I ever dreamed I was going to be one day, it's your fault and I want to fucking divorce. So we're seeing, and, I, and, I've, and I've had several, several friends uh, going through that in their 40s. And the, and the mm -hmm. divorces are kind of otherwise blameless. It's not that there was addiction. There's not there was financial issues. It's not that there was infidelities. It's, it's that. It's, I am just sick of this and I want my fair share. So all that said, great resignation, right? And yes, we are in some respects a halfway house or a hospice, right? For people transitioning out of the old game 
and fumblingly feeling their way forwards into what's next. And as you know, I think Socrates said, he said, we are, we are midwives of the soul. So in some respects, we're trying to help facilitate breakthroughs rather than breakdowns. We're trying to help mm-hmm. people navigate. Joanna Macy, the Zen teacher and ecologist, right? She said, we are the people of the passage. Like that's this time in history. And you mm-hmm. combine that with that notion of midwives of the soul, right? We are, the passage is the birth canal, right? It's this transition between worlds and those contractions hurt like a bitch. Being born feels an awful lot like dying and sometimes is. Yeah. Right? And so mm-hmm. how do we help people understand the simple questions? Where have we come from? What's the long arc of human history? And what is a story that can hold this chapter also? You know, what's going on? How do we cut through the chaos and the confusion and the misinformation and the hysteria of right now to get a clear-eyed sense provisionally of what's happening? And what do we do now? And therefore, what is right action? What is right livelihood? What is right relationship? You know, what's mine to do and who should I be doing it with? Um, For sure, we help facilitate those questions, but back to that notion of kind of an agnostic Gnosticism and not grabbing the ring, right? And Mm -hmm. letting the mystery Mm -hmm. stay the mystery, right? Is to say, fuck if we know what's yours to do, but we will 100% show you how to go look and we will do our level best to hold you ethically accountable for acting on that which you've been shown, And let's just trust that. Let's just trust that a bunch of people with unmitigated access to source, right? Whether it's the psychedelic experience, whether it's non-ordinary, whatever the entry routes are is, is immaterial. That a bunch of people tending towards growth and wholeness with access to inspiration and information will then feel compelled to act creatively to the best of their ability to leave it a little better than they found it. Like that I have faith in, you know, it's sort of like I have Mm. marginal, in fact, I'm deeply skeptical of most human culture, but I'm infinitely optimistic about the possibilities of human nature. You know, Mm. or or, or as John Mm -hmm. Lennon put it a little bit more saltily, you know, I love humanity. It's just the fucking people I can't stand. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good abbreviation. Um, I have one maybe weird question to you, but I think it's super interesting since you spoke in a lot of military colleges and um, schools, and I guess also because of the Navy SEAL aspect in the book, there's also the um, Sandhurst Royal Mi- Military Academy. Uh-huh. Do you remember what you speech was, yeah. especially in this place? It was fundamentally about that the world we're entering is what military strategists call a VUCA situation of, it's an acronym, so volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I was just making the case that a straight command and control perspective or consciousness, you know, trying to solve binary problems is inadequate to the task and that we need more leaders who are capable and competent at holding paradoxical realities and Bayesian uncertainties, meaning, you know, just the idea of we don't ever get 
perfect information to make a perfect decision. It's always partial and it's always unfolding. So constantly update your maps and models. And actually, you know, my partner at the Flow Genome Project is Kurt Cronin, is, is a former SEAL Team 6 commander who mm-hmm. ran Joint Special Operations Command in 27 countries and was coming completely from love, never lost a man in combat. And it's very easy to sort of be like, oh, you know, those are all just meathead, you know, bloodthirsty macho dudes. This is not the case at all. In fact, the higher up you go, and Sandhurst was, you know, the, the my liaison was the head of uh, the SAS um, battalions. And, and, you know, and they are profoundly thoughtful, incredibly informed, humble, and curious. So the higher up you get into the tier one special operations community, the more you realize, oh, all easy stereotypes of the military fade away. And and you are in the company of um, really, really dedicated, disciplined, highly accomplished people who are on team good guy. Now there's all sorts of egregious errors. And in the last 20 years of, you know, the the global wars, there's been lots of error messages, but in general, that upper echelon are high integrity folks. And what I can say is that at Sandhurst, I had a, a very interesting experience because we were invited into the chapel at Sandhurst and all the columns inside are all the inscriptions of every single officer who's ever graduated from Sandhurst and then been killed in action. And it's this memorial and it says, you know, so-and-so Boer War, you know, 1896, you know, killed while, you know, rescuing his friend from a foxhole, Afghanistan, 19th century, you know, in a, in a cavalry charge, Basra in Iraq, whatever it would be. And so, you know, the Vietnam War Memorial in DC is just that famous, you know, black obsidian slab mm-hmm. with all the names etched, but there's no details. It's just their name. Mm-hmm. And so having the little, the how they died, who they died for kind of thing, just a sentence or two was profoundly moving. And, you know, my father was a Royal Naval test pilot. So I kind of grew up around the military world and at the same time have been, you know, completely counterculture to it in my entire, you know, adult life. Um, but sitting there, I was like, whoa, this is so, this is so strange. Because on the one hand, you can feel the nobility and the heroism and the dignity of this service. And on the other hand, holy shit, man, this is 150 years of just colonial conquest and violent empire. And how on earth do we hold both? Which is it? You know, and, and the simple answer is, is, is it is both. You know, there is this in our Western tradition, you know, are the seeds of a beautiful humanist experiment. And that goes back to Rousseau and Locke and, you know, and all the normal folks we remember from school, right? But all men and women, right, are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, regardless of race, color, or creed. And it gets reset across France, across all the different democracies that sprung up since. And it's been forever buggered up, forever compromised, forever hijacked and captured by less noble forces. But that idea had never been expressed anywhere in human history. It had always been the rights and privileges extend to our tribe, to our faith, to our creed. No one ever had ever floated the notion right? That every human born on this earth is a child of God and potentially a child of the state and entitled to 
inalienable rights, regardless of what your zip code or your skin tone or your altar looks like. And it's really easy now. The 1619 Project in the United States, which is like the entire American experiment was a sham. It was forever polluted with the original sin of slavery, all these things. These are tragically naive reactions. They're not wrong in sourcing that pain and that injustice, but they, I think they are potentially about to, you know, literally, you know, drown the baby in the bathtub um, out of the grief and the rage of this still being a partial experiment. And I'll maybe leave us with this because to me, the most succinct model for all of our dynamics, and this includes the potential healing of the psychedelic renaissance, this includes, you know, kind of all of our hoped for efforts, right, is what in the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition is talked about the, the idea of ensoulment. Like, how do we become a homegrown human? How do we become fully baked, right? And it says we start out pre-tragic, and then we move to the tragic, and then maybe we can progress to the post-tragic, so the pre-tragic is, I'm going to grow up and marry Prince Charming or Sleeping Beauty and be a president or an astronaut. And I, you know, I am told and I believe everything's <laughs> going to work out, right? Yeah. And then I enter the tragic. I get the, my ass handed to me. And it could be in childhood. It could be an unsafe family. It could be adolescence. It could be sexual violence. It could be social ostracism. It could be bankruptcy, divorce, disease, setback, life as it is, whatever. And I hit the tragic. And then I am overwhelmed with the impossibility of all this. And then I conclude nothing's going to work out. And many people end up there. They end up bitter, cynical, depressed, contracted, whatever it might be, right? And then a handful of people get to progress to the post-tragic, which is some version of it may not work out now. It may not even work out for me. But I believe that ultimately it's all going to work out. And that's the energy of, you know, the usual suspects, Gandhi, Mandela, King. And that is that, you know, what Gandhi called Satyagraha or truth force, what MLK translated into calling soul force. He said, when we can meet, right, when we can meet physical force with the majestic heights of soul force, then we have a chance of transforming this world. And what we're seeing in the world right now is all sorts of people on the social justice left and on the far right running into the tragic and they don't like it. No one likes it. It sucks, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the social justice left might be, for instance, like we were born after MLK. We were born in the 80s and the 90s. We grew up with Beyonce and Barack Obama and Bling, right? Yeah, we expected to be in a post-racial society where we all had a fair shot at the good mm -hmm. life and we mm -hmm. haven't, right? That's the whole George Floyd. That's the whole Trayvon Martin, the evolution mm -hmm. of Black Lives Matter and the 1619 Project, which is, wait, this is a fucking lie. And this entire deck, you know, structural racism, all of those things, the deck is stacked against us. But instead of, and, and this is really important, right? Because the civil rights movement of the 60s did source from post-tragic soul force, MLK did not go to D.C. for his march on Washington and go, I am sick and tired of you complicit white folks, right? And all you Klan racist motherfuckers lynching my people. You know, stop. He said, I have a dream. My dream is, can we recommit to that infinite game where black children and white children will walk hand in hand? The black people have a check to cash. I refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt, right? He was deliberately re-emphasizing our shared commitment, however partial, however compromised, however hypocritical, because it is also all those things, right? But still dusting off that 
delicate ember and blowing on it into transformation. Well, the current social justice movement has actually made a clean, both philosophical and spiritual break with King, right? Black Lives Matter actually has some heated and not unjustified critiques. They're like, oh, MLK was a patsy. He was just playing nice. He was oh, just kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he was, he was oh. trapped within the side, the notions of Christian charity and forgiveness. He was really just, you know, telling the white folks what they could hear and what they would tolerate. And it wasn't enough. So you, now you get to Hugh and Newton and you get to the Black Panthers and you get to by any means necessary and you get Black mm -hmm. separatism and you get, you get that kind of backlash. To be fair, you get that backlash with Tibetan monks today, right, who are self-immolating, who are engaging in terrorism. They're like, Dalai Lama, my ass, you know, look at what's happened to our people. You've turned the other cheek. You've talked about, yes, maybe this is the big plan and we're bringing Dharma to the West, but fuck it, man. We need to fight fire with fire. So this is a constant tension in social justice movements. But you're also seeing it on the alt-right. You're saying, oh, I grew up being told that I was in a white Protestant Christian nation made just for me. I was born on third base, convinced I hit a triple, and now we've got hillbilly elegy, we've got the erosion of Appalachia, oxy-opioid crises, rust belt, NAFTA, world trade, erosion of in industries and honest working class jobs, right? And now I feel fucking absolutely disempowered, right? I feel, I feel humiliated. And look at all these brown folks jabbering in different languages, cutting in line in front of me, right? So, so they're entering the tragic. And then you get demagogues like Steve Bannon and Trump and a whole bunch of others and Bolsonaro and, and Orban and you name it, who are all drum beating the drum of the ethno-nationalist state. And we can go back to the pre-tragic as well. We can go back to the good old days, folks. Right. And so we're seeing we're all entering the tragic. We cannot hide any more from it. The grief yeah. is almost overwhelming. And psychopaths and dark triad, like narcissists, Machiavellians, and, and, and sociopaths to psychopaths, are all rising up to hijack this grief and to redirect it back to pre-tragic fantasy movements, which are highly destructive, completely exclusive, and burn this whole fucking thing down. So the psychedelic renaissance, if it was to have a place, if it can serve as a force multiplier, it would be to initiate people into the agony and the ecstasy of this irrevocable, irreducible human experience. And can we access our own soul force? Can we take a stand with full beating and bleeding hearts, right? Weeping, right? Tears of joy and grief. And then be courageous, be joyful, right? And as Ramdas said, like walk each other home. Wow. So that was a great last word to just walk each other home. It's like such a nice ending. That was fantastic. Um, of course, we could easily go on for the next five hours, I guess. There's new questions coming out of the things you said, but... Um, I'm very grateful that you were on the show because I really, I'm a great fan of your books. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jamie, for being on the show. It was a big pleasure as expected, but um, I have so many things to think about now and I'm going to watch Wild Wild West again. So thank you so much. And um, I hope we can do another round maybe soon. For sure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club Show and please follow us on Twitter, 
Instagram, Facebook or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course. There's also a new health club now. Or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon. <music>